Hello and welcome to another episode of the Christian Reef Podcast. Today's guest is a social psychologist, entrepreneur, author, and skydiver all the way from Kansas City in the United States. His name is Dr. Kevin J. Payne. Welcome to the show, Kevin. How are you doing? Well, thank you so much for having me, Christian. I appreciate being here. Oh, the pleasure's mine as always. Um, yeah, I mean, there's there's many different I suppose, directions I can take this in straight away. But let's start from the academic perspective. So you have a PhD in sociology and psychology. I'm just mm-hmm. quite interested to know, how did you get into this field of study and what have been your sort of biggest discoveries to date? Well, in the first place, I always knew I wanted to be a scientist. <clears throat> I was a weird kid from the time I was a kid. I was really interested in science and mathematics, but I was also really interested in the arts. So Mm. I grew up both performing and being a science geek. And so that was kind of a weird combination that you don't see as as often as, as, you know, you might think. Um, But, but it is, however, more common than you would think too, because creativity is at the heart of both of those things. If you want to be a scientist, It's about trying to push the edge of knowledge in your particular area. And so I thought I would be a natural scientist. And then long about the time I went to college, I realized that I was so fascinated uh, by people because Mm. people are just the, the endless conundrum that keeps on coming. And so I, I made a switch from physics to initially economics, which is actually a fairly common switch because both of those fields emphasize mathematical formulations and, and that sort of thing. So I did, I did my undergraduate uh, at, in what the Brits call procedures and policy. Yep. And, and, and I spent you know, a couple of years there. I was in Oxford and, uh, you know, had a, had a great time. So that's political science, economics, philosophy, and in my case, a lot of mathematics and econometrics. So I, I, I then went from that to the first year of my PhD in economics, and I got into that, and I don't know if you want the story about this, but it was, it was kind of funny. I'm, we're in a... Uh, a a weed out class. It's a microeconomics class. And the idea is to start the class with a whole bunch of people in it and get rid of as many as you possibly can throughout the, the course. And, and so we were doing this and, and, you know, maybe there were half of us left at the end of it. But <laughs> so it was pretty brutal. And, and but, hold on. So was there sure. like particular measures that the teachers took to actually weed people out like particular exercises? Well, it, it, this, this was really kind of fascinating because it was <clears throat> this class started a month before the actual program started and you had to be there. And they, they brought in a professor from outside. Ah. so that it could be somebody you could really hate and they brought this guy in from the Sorbonne who I will not name and although this is 30 years ago I'm sure he's retired by now Uh, but but in any case he would we were there like every morning at 8 a.m 
and then, and it went all morning. And then every Saturday, there was a test. And, and this was the kind of thing where he would just like fling a piece of chalk at somebody and say, you, get up, there at the board, uh, prove this. And he would give us some mathematical thing to prove. And so we would start on our proof and he would start berating us. And, uh, and then eventually he would just <laughs> exasperated <laughs> and, and, and run up and grab the chalk and throw it at somebody else and say, you continue. And, and, and so <laughs> it was, you just it was a rem- I had a teacher at school that was like this, like, you just couldn't get away with this shit anymore. This is old school. Like we get like, this I is, a, yeah, this is very old school. I had an old, old English teacher called Mrs. Jones that would literally, she was very old school. Even then she was old school. This was like the early 2000s and she would just be yeah. like is someone talking in my class and she'd just take a board rubber and just throw it at your head <laughs> and, <laughs> and the best bit about this is that none of the other teachers ever like even though they knew it was wrong like she couldn't behave like this anymore none of them had the guts or the ghoul to say anything to her because to be sure. fair, there was a level of respect she was a fantastic teacher like if you were in her lesson you would 100 percent do well and learn something yeah. it's just her methods are a bit <laughs> you, can't, you can't be throwing board rubbers at kids heads man you just can't yeah yeah exactly so we went through that and then we got into the the first semester there and and it's this micro week on sequence and and it was one of those classes where there were boards there were whiteboards on all four walls of the room hmm. and he would start with equations in the upper left front of the room and he would keep going and he would fill the boards all the way around each session as he was just lecturing constantly. And, and then he would start again and, and just like be erasing as he went uh, through. And so finally one day he got to the end of the class and, and tossed the marker down and said, therefore, the consequence of this is that understanding humans is not essential to understanding economic systems. And everybody's just furiously writing away. And I had the temerity to raise my hand and, and say, how can you justify that? And he looked at me blankly and everyone else in the class looked at me blankly. And he said, but the, the, and he started pointing around to the, and I said, I'm not questioning your mathematics. I'm questioning your first principles. And everyone kind of looked at me like <laughs> I was, I had grown a third head. And, and, and then the bell rang and the class was over and it was never answered. But at that point, I realized I was in the wrong field. So I'd gotten all the way to my doctorate in econ when I realized, oh, it's the wrong field. So I made a lateral shift to sociology and psychology and uh, found a really good fit and had a wonderful doctoral mentor who was a very senior, eminent scholar in the field. And I was his last doctoral student. And, uh, you know, it was, it was a, a profoundly wonderful enriching educational experience but uh you know i so i had to wander around a little bit to get there it's amazing how teachers in our lives can and this comes in all fields not just academic academia but oh, also yeah. just in general yeah the different teachers in our lives can just kind of 
cause us to have these like light bulb moments sometimes you know i remember Definitely. i had it with english class and business where you know I, I wasn't like i was a smart kid but i wasn't you know i doubted myself a lot and i was never like you know particularly great at like maths or science or any of that stuff um, i liked science didn't like maths but i understood why it was necessary but i lived for english and business and i remember just like certain things clicking every now and again like i i remember one time and i i always attribute this um to the beginning of my education sort of going in the right direction and it was a really important life lesson i was about 14 at the time 13 14 wasn't particularly doing very well in my studies and i was failing in business because i just started it i didn't know what was going on they'd lost all my work for a semester so i had to redo it like i was very unmotivated and my teacher sat me down shout out to miss Sinelli, and um she just said what are you doing and i was like what do you mean she said what do you want to do it's not often a teacher asks you that right and so i was like what do you mean she's like what's no, your... no, i use that a lot with my advisees besides it's like, what's your goal what would you want to achieve in this class and i just kind of sarcastically went i want to ace it because I was, I knew I was failing at the time. So I was like, I want to ace the class. And instead of mocking me or saying like, oh, you know, you can't do that or let's set a more reasonable goal. She was like, okay, we're going to need to do work very, very hard then. And I was like, yeah. And I, I didn't expect to hear that. And I was like, oh, and she's like, if you want to do that, then we'll work together and we'll make that happen. And it was like, I don't know. There was, there was almost like stars in my eyes at that moment. Cause I was like, you're saying there's a chance. And she was like, yeah. And I'll help you get there. And from that point onwards, I worked my absolute ass off and I became like top of the class and I aced the course and I went to do the next level of it afterwards and everything. And it all started from that moment. And I attribute all that to, to her and also the other supporting business teachers too, but her in particular, because she believed in me and she had kids as well. So I think the mother instinct as well served her well. I think most of the time, if you've got children, you'll probably be a good teacher because you know how to talk to people younger than you and inspire them and say the right things. Because that's the thing, like people think that teaching, I think a lot of the time is, oh, you just need to teach them the right tools and they'll get there. And it's like, no, sometimes you need to just kind of inspire some self-belief in people and give them like this awakening moment and then then they go and achieve that goal but you still need to give them that initial spark of um realization that they can achieve it but you know i spent 15 years as a professor and and i still do education all the time that's core to to what i do and you you bring up a really important distinction and that's this this goal process distinction and you can have a goal and a goal is great, but you then have to answer the question, how am I going to get there? And then you have to go one step further and you have to say, what are the resources and what is the, the help, the support that I'm going to need to make those steps? And, and then once you do that, you've got to take the goal and set it aside and focus on the process. 
And then you can, you can pause every once in a while and stand and look up and say, oh yeah, I'm getting closer to my goal. Okay, I'll keep doing what I'm doing. Uh, or you can look up and say, oh no, I'm, I'm getting further away from my goal. I need to make some changes. And, and then you tweak the trajectory, you maybe find different help, you find other resources and you dive back in because it's always about the work because humans are learning animals. Every single second we are awake, we are always learning. The issue is, are you paying attention to what you are learning? Mm -hmm. Because often we're not, we're on autopilot. And so you're still learning something, but you're not aware of what it is you were learning. So you pay attention to yourself and you're like, oh, how did I get this bad habit? And you're like, oh, well, you know, that's what you, that's what you taught yourself through your experience when you weren't paying any attention. Yeah. And there's, there's two things that come to mind when you say this. One is understanding the significance of what you've learned and why it matters which is why when I was at school and I would ask loads and loads of questions and I'd be told off for asking questions, I knew that that was logically stupid of those teachers to say that because mm -hmm. you need to understand why you understand what you understand. And secondly, I remember like growing up, my mum would always make an effort to explain things in detail. And she was mm -hmm. a young, she was a young mom and, and she would get mocked for that. People would be like, Oh, why are you explaining that to him? He's a child. What are you doing? Blah, 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 blah. And it's like, no, I'm doing that because now he understands why I'm doing this. He understands I'm not being unfair. He understands the significance of why this is important. And if, if a kid is developed enough to ask a question, the kid deserves an answer that they can use. Yeah. Period. Full stop. Well, it also prevents, I mean, if we're talking just specifically about parenting, like it, it helps to eliminate that kind of parrot effect of you keep asking for the thing and you don't get it. If you explain why you can't get that thing, like, okay, um, no, don't put your hand there because you're going to burn it. If you just go, don't do it, don't do it. It does, it does nothing. It's pointless. But if you carefully explain, listen, this is really going to hurt you. I've accidentally hurt myself doing this. You don't want this. You put that person on the same level as you and you explain with respect. And that's, yeah. that gets through to someone. On the other hand, I tried that with my, my daughter when she was about three or so. She put her hand on the grill when I was grilling. And I explained it. And the next week, she did it again. And, and then my son... Yeah. Is This is even better. My son, when he was uh, two or so, so he's toddling along. He, he grabs a, a paint, a metal paintbrush from his mother's studio. Oh, no. And is toddling down the hall, and he sees an outlet. And he says, oh, and jams it in there. And there's like this... <laughs> and shot and it shoots him back across the hall. He bounces on the wall and he like shakes himself, grabs it, grabs the paintbrush, toddles back over and jams it in again before anyone can get over to. So then he has, he has like the baby sneech hair that's just sticking up in all directions. 
and like a black ring of carbonized around him. Fortunately, his mother happened to be on the phone with a friend of hers who was a nurse at the time. And was, she was able to, so they, she was able to check him out and everything and he was okay. But, but sometimes you can have it explained to you yeah. and you just need a little more experience. I, I remember when I was like, not uh, that I ever did anything like that. Of course not. No, no, no. But I did. When I was two years old, my mom's, we had those, old, I don't know if they have them in the States, but here in the UK, we, uh, we, we lived in, we were, we were quite poor. And I remember one and only time we lived in a house when I was really young, um, but it was an old house. And the radiators were like, if you put, like, you, they would get so hot that you couldn't touch them. Like they were the boiling, crazy heat. Yeah, I shared a flat like that in Oxford. Yeah, it's, know it's about. you know the one. It's like the really thin ones. It's weird. Mm -hmm. yeah. And um, my mom explicitly told me, and we were sitting in the bathroom. She's like, don't put your hand on that. And I was like, why? And she's like, if you put your hand on that, it will burn. Do not do that. And she turns away and I put my hand on it. And I'm like, ah! And she's like, what did I tell you? But she, it wasn't like, like, like angry, screaming, anything. It was just like, what yeah. did I tell you? And then I just felt this, like, fact. shame. I'm like, Oh, and then that was where the lesson was learned. <laughs> but no, to, to your point about like people really listening to things and understanding things, I think it brings up another point about like relationships as well, in the sense that, and this is, this is what, how I learned to show empathy to people because I didn't used to understand the concept of empathy and I've spoken on the show about this before, so I'll be brief, but I remember kind of thinking the showing empathy is just like a nice hug and a chat and i give some advice wrong no empathy is really sitting and listening and being present and trying to explore what the problem actually is yeah you hear words and you can listen and la 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 la, la whatever right but that's just context you're listening for what the problem really is so then you know how to address it and often yeah. that just comes from listening, but it's like, that's what you're looking out for. And that's the kind of what you were saying before about the significance of understanding why something is what it is. It's like, you're not listening to find out why this person's upset. You're listening to get to that point where you, it clicks and you're like, oh, they're upset about this thing. That's the real yeah. thing, not this thing that's just triggered them. Like, but this is the real problem and this is what we need to work through. Well, and people are, they know this at an intuitive level, but we have to be reminded that there are surface characteristics of the things that we're interested in, and then there are deep characteristics. Mm -hmm. And so we can hear, but not really listen. And the listening is an active process, it's an engaged process, and, and, True empathy is, is about trying to put yourself in another person's circumstance. Now, here's the asterisk that goes on that. Because while I will first say, we all really, really, really need to do that. What we also need to understand is if we look at the research on perspective taking. So how successful are you able to put yourself into another person's circumstance and accurately make attributions about 
what's going on. Mm. It turns out humans suck <laughs> at making yeah. attributions true. correctly. Okay. Yeah. And the closest people in your lives, so say a, a domestic partner that you live with, the best case is you will be correct in the attributions that you make about half the time. And that's it. So we don't just need to perspective take. It's not just a matter of us actively listening and trying to make those attributions. We also have to perspective give and we have to be receptive when they give their perspective to us. Because humans are resource misers. In other words, that's a really polite way of using academic speak to say we're lazy. Yeah. And, and we, we try to fill in the blanks all that we can. So we fill in the blanks with, you know, about a particular person with what we know about people like them, quote unquote, about the roles that they have about surface characteristics, things like that. And, and it turns out that we're all very diverse and we don't necessarily fit neatly into those roles like we would like people to. A key aspect of this, and I only say this because um, I often give people advice friends and stuff like that they come to me and I, I used to think it was weird because i was always like i don't have my shit together i feel like now i do but you know in the past not so much but i was always the one reason i was able to give advice is because you know it's like i had a friend that i was talking to and giving advice just before i came on today and i said to this person i was like i know you and the people that love you know you and you should listen to us because we're not trying to give you advice that we think you want to hear or that we would do. We're telling you the stuff that you need to hear that's right for you because we know you. And that's a key part of this. When, whenever you're given advice, like I make sure to always understand that I know the person properly and I'm very hesitant to give anyone advice unless I know the whole story. I mean, I still will try every now and again, but I never feel like it's really, as you say, like a correct attribution. I, I don't think it's really proper unless you know the person, because if you know them, and I don't mean like the way they tick and stuff like that, but like from the core aspect, like their innermost desires, uh, their fears, insecurities, everything in between. And you're like, okay, I know all of these things. This is the thing they're telling me about, but this is the deeper thing that's needs to be addressed. And then you relay the information that you know they need to hear based on the fact that you know them. And that's when you can sometimes get through to people. Obviously they need to be receptive and, and hear it, but that's kind of the core aspect of that. Well, I think one of the things that people forget about advice is it's not about you being an expert or a savior or anything else what it really is if you want some if you want your advice to stick you don't tell them you help them ask better questions yep. so that they can come to it themselves and if, if they come to it themselves 
they will accept it and they will be much more likely to act on it. But you can't be the sage on the stage or the guru or whatever it is. You, you've got to be humble and giving and questioning and curious and, and embody those values so that they can practice them and get better at them for themselves. Uh, it's a pleasure talking to you, sir. Honestly, like I, I mean this, like I've been thinking a lot lately about the fact that I get to do this. I believe this will be episode one, four, six, and I've been doing this close to two years now. And I've realized that I've become a better conversationist, better at listening, which is key, especially with what we're talking about. But I mean, I'm just so grateful I get to talk to all different types of people get their backgrounds. And, and, you know, the funny thing is like, it doesn't matter what background someone comes from, everyone has something to offer and you find yourself lost in these conversations. Like I really lose myself in these conversations and I sometimes forget that I have to steer it and actually <laughs> make a, a, a proper show. And cause that's the thing, like I used to approach it as like, this is an interview and you need to make these certain questions and, and, and to a degree, you know, you do need to kind of, hit the the various things that people are expecting to hear but i always think that there's more interesting stuff to dig into when, when you start gauging someone's opinions on things you know and 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 kind of that's when you find yourself often like leading into things naturally or, mm -hmm. or, or even just touching on things that you probably never expected you would touch on you know it's, it's just interesting you know, I think a good life is about collecting experiences. And that's not just experiences that I have, but experiences that I witness. Mm -hmm. And as a social and behavioral scientist, one of the things that really fascinates me and, and that I find truly a, a beautiful expression of our human experience, and that is expertise. And expertise is everywhere. And, and so I'll give you for instance. So for several years, I lived in a small college town and I had done my doctorate there and I stayed on faculty for a few years afterward. And so I had this house on the street and every week the trash collection would come by. And I would stand in this big picture window up the hill you know, looking down, watching the trash come by and collect early in the morning on like Wednesday morning when it came to our house. And I would watch and there was this one guy who at the time was, was a middle-aged guy. And all I can say is he was obviously mindful and graceful in his work. And he had this beautiful economy of motion as he would grab the, the garbage and, and throw it into the truck. And it was, and, and people say, well, how do you find beauty in garbage collection? And it was like, no joke. Every week I would make a point to just be there. When I would hear the truck coming, I would make a point to just stand there and watch because 
This was a guy, and evidently his, his co-workers and his bosses recognized this too, because often there would be a new hire that was with him. <laughs> he would be training yeah. the new person. And, and so, I mean, for me, that, that is a, a beautiful flashbulb memory that humans can, can find ways to express beauty and connection and skill that has been developed through, through years of attention and practice in any activity. And, and it is up to us to recognize those things because that makes us beautiful. I couldn't agree more. Yeah, I, I think the, the process of discovery for that is tough. And I know of myself, I've had times where I've, I've questioned myself and I've wondered, am I worthless? Do I have nothing to contribute? And I've, I've had friends that have said the same thing. And sometimes even the smallest things in our lives, you know, to us, you know, we're, we're masterful in and, and yet we, we don't even see it. And mm -hmm. I always think it comes down to confidence, you know, like it, it really it does. does. Yeah, it does. And it also comes down to allowing yourself to see yourself as you really are, because the things that we tend to diminish about ourselves are the things that we have become so practiced and habituated in that yeah. others have not. And so it has become so commonplace for us that, that we no longer see the magic in the way that we do it. It's true. Although I will say sometimes, as in, for instance, the example that you gave, when someone takes pride in what they do and they truly enjoy it, sometimes it is just beautiful experiencing and witnessing that, especially when they know and, and they're humble about it. They're like, yeah, it's yeah, just yeah. the thing that I enjoy, but they just make it look effortless. Like they're not even mm -hmm. trying. And it's just watching a master at work. Yeah, <sighs> it truly is. It, it is what we technically call a flow experience. Mm. And, and, you know, for, for me, the most profound and, and probably salient personal examples of that for me are well, on the one hand working through a scientific problem but there's there's not anything really interesting being a spectator on that because it's just me sitting there looking you know concerned and sometimes constipated but but the more profound example to witness this happens in skydiving mm. and and that is the thing that I love about it because there, there, you know, in my book, I talk about it, I call it the edge. And it's, it's a ratio between what a, a, a task in front of you demands of you and the capacity you can deliver in that moment. And so if the demand is really low and your capacity is high, well, you're bored. And if it's a little higher, then, well, this is in the area of habit. And you're not really paying attention. And as the demand gets a little higher, you know, now it's, it's, you're engaged. 
but then it, it approaches the limits of what you can successfully do. And these are called flow experiences. And you know this, it's, it's when you are, are challenged, but you are confident and you are not overwhelmed and you know that you are performing at the peak of your capacity. And this, this is a beautiful human expression. But the issue is, and it's stressful, because people don't, you know, we misunderstand stress. Stress can be good, it's called eustress. Stress can be bad, it's called distress. And the thing is, eustress and distress, good stress and bad stress are right next to each other at the edge. When your capacity is just a little bit more than what you need to deliver, that's eustress. And it's still triggering your acute stress response. It's still triggering your sympathetic nervous system. However, it ticks up just a little bit more and now the demand is a little bit more than what you can deliver and you are overwhelmed and you will fail. And, and the thing that people say is, you know, they say, oh, don't, don't get stressed. You need to reduce stress in your life. Well, that's a load of BS. Because, yes. <laughs> because, because if you pull yourself back from the potential mm -hmm. of the bad stress, you pull yourself back from the potential of the good stress. And this is where we find our value and our joy in our lives. And, and so, no, we have to learn how to reframe stress. I had the perfect example of this earlier this week where basically, so I, I work like freelance, right? Uh, I don't work every day. I work about four days a week. Um, and I do, I do other, I, I, I basically work all the time. I'm workaholic. Uh, but I find time to relax and be lazy too. You know, it's balance. Anyway, point is, um, I've I've had uh, an influx of demand in the podcast lately, as far as guests are concerned. So I I just decided to run with it. I'm like, you know what? Let's just get it all done now, and I'll put myself ahead. I'll pre-schedule this stuff. You know, I'll, I'll take advantage of the situation, and I'll have a good time. But obviously, since time is the key aspect to this. What it means is that it's fine if it's a day off, a weekend, that's no problem, right? But when it's a day of the week when I've got sort of a day job, I've got to then finish that thing, then go straight to doing the podcast and editing the podcast and scheduling the podcast. And then on top of that, I had additional other work that I was doing. And it got to a particular day where, yeah, I had, you call it stress, is that right? Yeah, E-U-S-T-R-E-S-S, eustress. Eustress. So I, I experienced that, and I've experienced that several times where, as you say, like you get into that zone where you've got a little bit too much work and you have that moment where you think, how am I going to get this done? But then you just start doing it. You start the doing, and you get into, as you call it, the flow state, and, and then you just start doing it. And before you know it, you've already done it. And then that's when you de-stress, if you like, and just relax. Right. But but it's after having embraced the stress and use it as as like part of like what you are. And I always bring up this example because I think it's amazing and people should go out of their way to find this. There's a interview with David Bowie sometime in the 90s. And I can't remember exactly what the question is, but someone asks him about his work and he basically says the best state you want to be in is to be basically imagine that you're in the deep end of a pool and your feet are not quite touching the floor but your head is above the water so you're not drowning and he said basically that's the state you want to be in perpetually 
So you're just a yeah. little bit out of your comfort zone, but you're not so far out that you're, you know, completely out of it. You're just a little bit out, always reaching a little bit out. And that's right. the perfect space to be. And that's really crucial because like to continue this, you know, this metaphor. So if your demand is a little bit over your capacity, yeah, you're overwhelmed and you fail. If it's a little bit more than that, so now it's, it's noticeably more, this, you will get injured yeah. from it. And if it is a lot more than what you can deliver at that point, then this is what trauma is. Yes. That is actually what trauma is. And, and the crucial thing to understand is we've got physical edges, we've got cognitive edges, we've got emotional edges, we've got social edges, we've got operational edges, we've got all sorts of edges. And we may, something may not be, say, a cognitive edge. We may, in the abstract, know how to do it. But it may be emotionally really difficult for us to do. So in other words, I know the right thing to do, but doing that in that experience, I have to confront a lot of negative emotions that I'm not prepared to handle. I'm still going to fail. And on the other end, I may get really angry at myself because I think I know what to do. Well, yes, you knew what to do. You could make that cognitive edge, but you couldn't make the emotional edge. And we learn, remember I said we always learn, so we're always learning in one of two ways. We're either edge learning, this is growth. This is where growth happens, always. This is the trigger to growth. So physically, that's like you know pushing yourself to failure lifting weights, right? But it's also cognitively, emotionally, socially, all that stuff. Or we're doing what's called habituated learning. And so that's down in our comfort zone. And that's pushing things down into automaticity, right? So the thing is, if we want to, humans are always either growing or atrophying. We're growing or dying, one of the two. That's period. So you have to regularly have those growth experiences of all different yep. kinds. But you can't live there because you're triggering your acute stress response. So if you grow, now you've got to pull yourself back to what I call your home, away from the edge, and you've got to rest, relax, recover, nourish, sleep, all that stuff, because the trigger for the growth is at the edge, but the actual growth happens when you back off and allow your system to repair. A few years ago, when I returned from Estonia, I was living in Estonia for, for three years, and a lot had happened. I'd basically gone to university in England and then for three years, mm -hmm. and then straight away I'd gone to Estonia and then I came back. So it's basically like three, uh, five to six years of just constant stuff going on, constant stressful situations, unfamiliarity, mm -hmm. all sorts of stuff, constantly being out of my comfort zone and on the edge. And it's interesting the time, and this is why I wanted to bring this up. So I returned to the UK in February 2020, moved to a new city, so the stress didn't really stop. And then once I'd kind of got my place to live and I'd settled down, I basically de-stressed. I basically just sat down and had time to think. 
And then I did exactly what you're talking about, where I then started processing the last six years of my life. <laughs> and it was, it was a lot. I mean, it, it, you know, the human mind works in, in mysterious and amazing ways. And for me, it's very intrusive. Like my brain just never stops thinking. And that's useful, but also a hindrance. And, you know, yeah. and, and I'm, I imagine many of us are like that sometimes. And do you know, I will say, if you're able to find a way to switch off, muzzled off to you, well done. That's incredible because I really struggle from that sometimes. And it's... It's taken me years of meditative practice to build that. And, and that... I'm still far from perfect. But that, that's the key though, isn't it? It's like that conscious effort to actually take the time to do that. Like for me, I needed to just take time to just sit down and just think and chill. And then through that, I started just just thinking about stuff and, and, and coming to terms with certain things and, and, and really learning the lessons that I hadn't actually learned when I was dealing with them. And I put that down to what you were talking about, which is the stress factor. It's like you're dealing with all this stuff and you don't quite learn the lesson straight away. Like people say, learn the lesson, right. learn from the lesson. It's like, but you need to sit down and actually absorb and think about the lesson. Mm -hmm. that's, that's not a conscious thing either. It's like a, you go for a walk in the forest, the thought comes up in your head and you're just walking around and then it suddenly just clicks and dawns on you. And then it's like, ah, and it's so similar in every other field. That's why when you said earlier that, you know, you were surprised there was a link between creativity and science, you know, I found, I thought the same thing when I was growing up and now I'm just like, no, it makes perfect sense. Creativity is mm -hmm. in everything. Um, but this kind of thought process that we have, doesn't matter if you're a mathematician, a scientist, an artist, uh, rocket scientist, whatever, that doesn't matter what your career is, everyone can relate to this, where you've got a problem, you can't figure it out, and you're like, and you just stop, and you just, I don't know, walk away, you have a cigarette, you go do your business, and then while you're doing that stuff, it just comes to you. Maybe you're on the treadmill and you're just running and it clicks or you go out for a drive and it clicks or just sitting, you know, enjoying the, the Sunday weather and it clicks, you know, it's like those moments when you take that time or med through meditation, as you mentioned, your, your method, you know, it's whatever your method is, whatever your vice is, whatever, you know, your, your thing that makes you wind down is that's where the answer will come. Well, you've got to have the, you've got to have the preparation. So you've got to have the resources and experience that you have built and you can't skip a step here. You can't suddenly go 10 steps forward, 20 steps forward because you will be traumatized, right? We've already established that. This is, this is, so you've got to go step by step by step and you've got to have the triggering experience. So that is that edge experience where you, where your system is motivated to grow. Because if you sit, if you just sit on the couch with, with, you know, your Cheetos or Wheatabix or whatever it is, watching Netflix all the time, try to be multicultural there. And, and then your, your system is learning that it can work down to those expectations all the time. Right. Now I'm saying, you know, I'm not saying don't do that. I'm just not, I'm saying don't do that all the time mm. because our system will learn up or learn down because we're resource misers. Okay. 
and and we will try to efficiently do what our environment what what we expect our environment is going to demand of us and and so <clears throat> we are we are building we are learning in those ways so you got to go to the edge but then you've got to disengage that sympathetic nervous system engage your parasympathetic nervous system right because the sympathetic nervous system is the acute stress response called the fight or flight response it's really actually a lot more than fight or flight it's more like freeze front flight fight fawn flock fright faint i mean there's a lot of stuff going on i call it the effort response I knew it was never that straightforward. When they taught me that yeah. in psychology class, I was like, no way is it that black and white. Nothing in life is that black and white. Come on. Yeah, it is not nearly <laughs> that black and white. But that does particular things to our system and to the way we think and the way we see ourselves and mm. the possibilities we see in the world. So we've got to back off because now we've triggered, we've triggered an edge. Now we got to back off and engage that parasympathetic nervous system, also called the feed and breed system or the rest and digest system. Hmm. And what, what that is about is about comfort and safety and security right. so that you can nourish and rest and recover and consolidate and, and grow so that next time you go out to the edge, your edge is a little bit further. You're a little more competent there. Amazing stuff. Um, in the course of that earlier, you mentioned about your book. So your book is called Your Life Live Will? Well? Mm-hmm. Your Life Lived your Well. Life Sorry, lived there you go. Well. Your Life yeah. Lived Well. So talk to us a little bit about this book, the process of creating this book, what led up to that, and you, why yeah, people should read it. You know, it. I, 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 so... Uh, I do, you know, Your Life Lived Well is the name of the company, it's the name of the book, it's the name of the seminars that I do, it's, mm-hmm. it's there. same on my brand. podcast, all of it. <clears throat> that is the brand. And for me, there were a couple of things. So one thing that we haven't really talked about uh, here is that I live with multiple sclerosis, and mm-hmm. I was first symptomatic with MS in 1989. Mm-hmm. And I was... Uh, uh, correctly diagnosed in 2006, and uh, MS is, uh, you know, there there are about 2.8 million people in the world right now diagnosed living with MS. So it is a relatively common rare disease, and it is an autoimmune neurodegenerative condition. So my nervous system is being eaten up, the myelin in my central nervous system, my brain and spinal cord is being eaten up by my confused immune system. So that means that everything I I do think, feel, say, hope, dream, whatever passes through my central nervous system and wherever I get damaged is wherever I get symptoms. So the symptoms of MS I'm in chronic pain. I have chronic fatigue. I'm chronically confused. My legs don't work right sometimes. I've got, you know, parathesias, which are random feelings that don't actually exist. I've got over 30 symptoms that come and go. Wow. Uh, and, and so it is, it is a real grab bag. And one of the things that it, that it did to me was I came to a point in my life where 
my condition had gotten very bad and I lost everything that I cared about. My, my career had exploded. My family had exploded. My, you know, my dog even died on me. Oh. And <clears throat> yeah. Sorry to hear and that. And then three days after my, my dog uh, traumatically died in front of me, I was struck by lightning almost. It hit the tree uh, right next to me and, and knocked me off my feet and blinded me and deafened me. And, and so, you know, I, I really felt like Job at that point. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I was going to say, did yeah. you start to feel like, is there a curse on me or something? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Christ. And, and I, I literally had come to a point in my life where I couldn't see a path from where my life was to any kind of life I was interested in living. And my, my, right about that time, because my son was the last one to leave, and he said, you know, Dad, you really suck at doing things for yourself. And I realized that, you know, so I got a PhD in people, I got all the knowledge, but I had become so consumed being the dad, being the husband, his, you know, supporting his mother through a decade of, of cancer, uh, you know, keeping a roof over our heads as a sole income of a family of four with two small kids and all that stuff. I had let my own self-care go by the wayside. Because it was always, we'll get through this next crisis, and then I'll be able to catch up with that. And we just never would. There was one crisis after another for 10 years. And so I realized that, yeah, he had never seen me do something just for myself. Okay. And I was like, wow. So, so I knew that I had spent the last 20 years or so always being the expert in the room, being the professor, being the expensive consultant, being whatever. And <clears throat> I had stopped taking care of myself and I'd given up on myself. And I had been betrayed by my body, by the MS in so many ways over the years that I had become terrified of my own body. The thing I feared most in the world was locked in my carcass with me. And all of those fight or flight, you know, quote unquote things that we talked about earlier that I mentioned, all those strategies are about getting distance between you and the thing that you fear. Mm -hmm. But I can't get distance from my own body. And, and a lot of times the thing that we fear most in the world is something that we can't get away from. So we have to learn to reframe it and, and accommodate it and work creatively around it and through it. And so I said, I'm going to give myself one more chance. And literally, this was my last chance I was giving myself. I, I, that's not an overstatement. I said, I'm going to use my science and skydiving to save myself. Because I'd wanted to be a skydiver from the time I was a little kid. I started doing the training in the 90s for the first time got a handful of jumps in and then a lot of life got in the way. And eventually my, my condition got so bad that I gave up on it. So I said, okay, I need to do something just for myself that there's no practical reason for like jumping out of a quote unquote, perfectly good airplane a lot. And, and, and I need to do something that takes me to my edge 
and allows me to build confidence in my wonky body that I had lost. And so a lot of people come to skydiving because they're afraid of heights. That's not my issue. I mean, I'd, I'd, I'd had enough jumps, you know, in the 90s that I knew what I was going to be into. When I came back to skydiving in 2019, it was, you know, I didn't know whether I could pass the training. Because my body is weird. And, you know, I can't feel my legs below my knees. And you've got to be able to control your legs in free fall or you start spinning and tumbling out of control. It's difficult to stand up a landing on a parachute when you can't feel your feet. So, you know, I had, I had some exceptional challenges that I had to get through. And normally it takes 25 jumps to get your A license in skydiving. That's the first of four licenses. It took me 47 because I had to do a lot of extra training on the ground. I had to spend a lot of time in a wind tunnel with an instructor holding my legs in exactly the right position so that I could say, okay, I can't feel what's going on with my legs, but I can get consistent feelings at the tendons behind my knees. And so I could learn to interpret those signals and say, okay, when my, when my tendons feel like this, this is what my leg is doing. Wow. So I had to get creative and work within my limitations and work around it, and I managed to do that. So in 2019, I logged about 140 jumps. I got my A and my B license. In 2020, I set myself a bigger goal. And I said, I'm going to become a legit skydiver. And what that means is passing 500 jumps in the sport, because that's where you are eligible for all the licensing. That's where you're eligible for professional ratings. And so in, if I was going to do that in 2020, that means that I was going to have to jump on average once a day for the entire year. Jeez. And so, so I set myself that goal and I logged 370 jumps in 2020 and got through the licenses, earned a coach rating and, and became a legit skydiver. Now, am I an expert? Far from it. I've got 600 and some jumps now, you know, and, and uh, later today I'll probably be out of the drop zone and get a jump in because the weather's nice. Um, but it was an edge for me physically, mentally, emotionally, because, and here's the thing. So you see the cover of my book and if people can't see it, you know, it's me at 5,000 feet. Uh, and, and there's this, it, the sun is on the horizon. There's these beautiful clouds below me. And this was the exact image I wanted on the cover of my book. And it took us eight jumps over six weeks to capture this image. And it tells the story of everything that I do. And here's what it is. So I'm in street clothes. So no helmet, no jumpsuit, nothing like that. I'm in jeans and a sweater. And I look like a, a guy, a quote unquote normal guy off the street who is thrust into this extraordinary circumstance. And that's what it feels like when you get a chronic diagnosis that you're never going to get better from. Feels like your life is in free fall, like the bottom has been taken away from you. So at that instant, I'm 5,000 feet above the earth and I'm headed to the earth at 120 miles an hour. Now, what that means in practical, real terms, not exaggerating, my life expectancy is now 27 seconds if I do nothing at that point. 
You can be absolutely certain that if I do nothing, when that photo is taken, I would have been dead 27 seconds later. So what am I doing? I've got my hands up to my forehead and I'm, about, and I'm doing something that every skydiver in the world recognizes. It's called the wave off. You bring your hands up to your forehead and you sweep them out broadly. And what I'm doing is I'm warning everyone in my airspace that I am about to take action to save myself. And so I wave off and I deploy my parachute. What I am doing in the face of certain death is choosing actively for life. And that's what I want people to understand. If you're going to make your life better, it's going to start. Even if it's out of control, even if you're overwhelmed, you are going to have to actively choose life. At what moment did you realize through your skydiving that it was actually a wider metaphor for your life and all of your struggles that you were dealing with? You know, I, I, I had a sense of that going back to it. I mean, it was, it was, it, it truly is, you know, if you're a fan of the Stoics, it truly is a memento mori. It is, it is an active acknowledgement that we are going to die, but not today, because I am going to choose living. And, and to do that repeatedly, to be a middle-aged guy with a wonky central nervous system who can day after day after day fling his body happily from a perfectly good aircraft, have a lot of fun, you know, for 60 or 70 seconds in the meantime, and then save myself every time and land it on target. That is a massive amount of confidence that I can then carry into the rest of my life. So how did you actually start doing that? Because obviously it's one thing to, to do what you know you needed to do, which is something for yourself and to you know and uh, you know you've kind of already partially answered the question as much as you recognize that this diagnosis that you had is not a hindrance it's just basically saying to you okay this is what your this is your, the, the hand you've been dealt and instead of resisting it you've got to find a way to adapt to it and and rather adapt to that situation and then make life work for you within the confines of that so in essence i guess my question is how did you begin to do that elsewhere well it's an invitation to be creative and and it goes back to this edge idea and that's <laughs> this is chapter four of the book and 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 it goes back to something i i, I briefly touched on earlier and that is being humble. Hmm. And, and so one of the things that happens is with a chronic illness, there are probably gonna be some of your capacities that are going to be greatly curtailed. Now that doesn't mean that they're always gonna have to be there, but that means that you've got to honestly acknowledge where they are right now so that you can 
systematically work on trying to grow them or work on trying to be creative and work around them or through them or whatever it is. And so I had to first take, take a brutally honest stock of where my capacities currently were. And that wasn't a very flattering view of myself right. because I, you know, I was living with chronic pain and chronic fatigue and chronic confusion. And those are all still with me, but I've managed to, you know, again, through meditation and exercise and, and cognitive reframing, I, I used to, you know, there were several years there where my pain on a, on a standard 11 point pain scale was a six to eight every day. That's bad. That's getting in the way of your life. And mm -hmm. it did. Now I still feel pain, but it's a one to three. Do you feel it all the day. time or just at particular moments? So it's not like continuous, continuous pain. No, so, all, all the time, all the time. So but even, it, but it, yeah, even right now. Yeah. But it, but it varies in. So <clears throat> it can feel like stinging. It can feel like electric shocks. It can feel like, a, a something thudding dully in the background it's it's always variable in my experience because it it's not about physical damage mm. that's no susceptive pain where you've got nerves in your skin that are detecting a noxious stimuli this is neurogenic pain yeah. it's because of damage in my brain so it's not a signal it's noise and and I've had to learn to operate through it. I know you gave some examples of things like you know uh, working out and and um, you know doing things like yoga, meditation, that kind of thing. But I mean, how how do you kind of? And sorry to put it in such a blunt way, but how do you stop yourself from going crazy, like feeling constant pain? Because I mean, uh, when I think about I don't know a particular pain that I've got or a sickness or something like that that's lasted a bit too long. It does start to get to you, it, and and yeah, like, yeah, it's, it's irrational because you know that it will go away. But this is something that that never goes away. So like, how do you reconcile that? Like, is it just like you build up a resiliency to it, or is there like steps you have to take to kind of deal the deal with okay. that? Like, how do you do? So, that? so I mentioned this issue of cognitive reframing. Right. So if we look at the last 20 years of pain science research, okay, we have a very different understanding of pain now than we did a generation ago. And of course, the problem is most medical health wellness professionals, so like, like a, a physician, through their course of training, on average, unless they are a specialist in pain, on average, we'll get somewhere between two and four hours of education on pain. And why? That's because there's a, there's, you know, as my son would say, a metric crap ton of stuff that they have to learn. And, and there's all kinds of, of other stuff. So yeah, two to four hours of pain. So if, if, for example, somebody were to go to my podcast and, and look at, you know, listen to my episode on pain management, okay. they would walk away from that episode 
with somewhere between half and, as, and a fourth as much education as their physician has about pain. And it would probably be more up to date with the latest research than what their education was whenever they got it. Okay? And so I, I used that word nociception earlier, which is the name for physical pain, crushing, burning, rending, tearing, you know, physical damage. That's a signal, okay? And, and it's not irrational, it's not non-rational, it's pre-rational. And, and this is a really important distinction in how you frame it, okay? So our pain system is older than our rationality. And it happens faster than our rationality. So your pain signals are going to get processed and, and your basal brain has already made a decision about it before you are even consciously aware of it. That's how fast it happens because our frontal lobes, our quote unquote higher cognition, our, which, which I like to think of as our recent brain, not our, you know, our primal brain, is slower because it's more nuanced, it's more abstract, it's, it's doing a lot more, it's seeing more. So what you have to understand is that when you get that signal of pain, it is not only a neurological signal. It has been layer upon layer of somatic systems and emotional systems and your experience and, and all of that stuff, right? That's, that's already been layered on it and it's either ramped up your experience of the pain or it's brought it back down before you ever experience it. So pain, and especially chronic pain, is a complex layered phenomenon. Is this why when people talk about like the pain threshold and the ability to experience more or less pain, it, mm -hmm. I mean, in a way, what you're kind of implying is if someone has kind of reconciled and come to terms with the idea of pain and, and taking it on that's how they're then able to to take on more or yes get you yeah, because like yes. okay I'll, I'll take like a professional wrestler as an example there, there's a guy mm -hmm. called uh, mick foley people might know him as cactus jack mankind uh, dude love in the in the states it's besides the point the thing and anyone who's not familiar with wrestling just google mick foley undertaker i don't know pain whatever you, you'll he, you'll see a lot of documentaries where he talks about pain and his threshold and kind of not it, like he 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 sometimes he says he kind of likes the pain but i think that it's a combination of maybe adrenaline doing what he does and stuff like that but i think it's also genuinely he just doesn't feel pain in the same way that other people do and i always wondered if that came down to just <clears throat> you know, being born able to do that, or if it's just something that, as you say, you can like work on and then be able to then take on more pain because you recognize that it's not, <laughs> I'm really wording this okay, badly, but so, not no, as no, painful. No, no, no. Let me, let me, yeah, let me jump in here. So, sure. so two things. One, we all have baselines. 
right. for every kind of thing that a human does, including mm -hmm. our pain tolerance. And so some people with regard to a particular goal may be more or less blessed naturally to begin with. But then from those baselines, we either grow or we atrophy, right. depending on what we use or, or not. So for example, the thing that is, and, and I know people are going to think this sounds weird, but what I had to learn was that I just don't care about pain. Mm. And that's, that's really what it was. Now, let me tell you the downside of this, okay? So, so it's about six years ago or so. I, I had gotten my pain threshold dropped down by this point. And, and it was still pretty new to me. So I had I'd literally gone from, there were several years there where I was taking 24 ibuprofen a day. Damn. Which is really bad for you. But, yep. but I refused to take opioids because I mm -hmm. wasn't going to go there. Yep. And none of the other, you know, like gabapentin's often prescribed for this and they prescribed it to me and did nothing for the pain. And, and so, you know, I tried some other stuff and it didn't, but ibuprofen, a lot of ibuprofen took a little bit of the edge off, but I was still, it was difficult for me to function. And, and so I had finally ratcheted it down to something normal. So I go in for an annual checkup with my, my GP, with my physician. And I have my shirt off and he's doing an exam. And he kind of looks strangely at my torso. And he walks up to me and he pokes me, kind of like the Pillsbury Doughboy. And a couple of times he looks. And then he, he asks me to drop trowel and he does some more examining. And then he steps back and he looks at me and he says, how are you still walking? Oh, right. Okay. And I said, huh? And he said, you have a massive triple hernia. I had both inguinals and the epigastric. And, and he slotted me for an immediate surgery and they went and did all three at once. Uh, and, and he said, I, he said, most people are just doubled over in pain because of this. And wow. as I didn't notice. Oh, of course. I didn't notice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. I had not yet learned to discriminate the kinds of pain. I had managed to successfully not care and, and dial down the kind of pain, but I, I, had, I had, you can't presume that all the pain that I'm gonna be living with is multiple sclerosis pain. There are other kinds of pain. I'm not immune from everything else that happens in life. And so I had to, to learn to regain my discrimination. That's incredible. I mean, I've, I've heard stories of this before, but like, that's just amazing. I mean, I think, I think the yeah, biggest thing, wacky. You know, I think it's something to be applauded, this, this ability to find strength within yourself to, you know, a not take the hard drugs like opioids and stuff. Cause that would be, if you're in a lot of pain, that's certainly a place you can go. And I mean, I mentioned professional wrestlers earlier, like a lot of them, especially in the 90s 80s etc took like painkillers to get through the pain and then they obviously became addicted to painkillers um mm -hmm. but you didn't go down that route so then you chose well what is the other option building your 
mental fortitude, being able to reconcile that pain and, and, and work through it and come to terms with it. And that takes, I think, a tremendous amount of strength from within. So, yeah, it's incredible. Well, and, you know, I don't want to frame it like that because I'm just a, you know, I'm just a guy. Right. And, and this is not an unattainable thing. What it does mean is you've got to start really, really small Mm -hmm. with like humiliatingly small baby steps. Yep. And you've got to cultivate a lot of patience and you've got to become willing to let yourself fail Mm. and to try it again. Right. Because you've got you're slowly 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 building that edge and 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 i want to make sure that people understand this is not like a a superhuman thing that this guy who spends his time flying through the sky all the time does although i do track through the sky like iron man so that's kind of cool but but it is a very did you ever, human did you ever cos- ever cosplay just for the fun of it are you no, dead? I have not. You should but, think but, about but, it. But I tell you, you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, it, it would be fun. Uh, when we're on our belly, in the belly to earth position, you know, like I am in, in, on the front of the book, we're going at about 120 miles an hour. If you then sweep your arms back and extend your legs like Iron Man, yeah. so that you are now in what's called a tracking position, you can accelerate from about 120 miles an hour to 200 miles an hour right. or faster in a second. Wow, that quick. Jeez. So suddenly it's like, and you are streaking through the sky. And I can tell you, you really do feel like a superhero because the, you know, I'm not a religious person, but the only way I can explain it is when you hit that track position and you get into the groove it suddenly feels like the hand of God just picks you up and pushes you through the sky. And, and it is just this mind-blowing, transcendent experience. You know, when I was doing my research notes on, on everything into you, like I, I found the whole concept just just interesting in general and obviously an inspiring story but i had no idea that like skydiving was so intrinsically linked to your recovery process um in every sense and i think it's just an amazing yeah. powerful story and i know that everyone listening well, really take away yeah. from this because yeah i mean it's not incredible. just a it's not just a surface thing it is, it is truly intrinsic to me. And, and I'm not suggesting that other people jump out of a perfectly good airplane. What I am suggesting is that I'm using this as a very visceral, evocative, salient example for, for, for people to look at and say, wow, but what's important is that it was an edge experience and I was doing it for me. Mm. It was about self-care. So what I'm encouraging is that everybody has something that is an edge for them, that they want to grow and explore and, and become better at in some way. And everybody has something that, that they can do just for themselves, just because 
this is something that makes you feel happy, satisfied, functional, engaged, meaningful, uh, you know, secure, whatever it is. It's, it's, you know, it fulfills one of those deep human values that we need. And, and that you should find that and do it and make a place for it and honor it and be humble about it and and let yourself be open to not a pre-programmed experience but the growth and and the beauty that can be found and discovered there and and yeah for me that's screaming through the sky at terminal velocity but you know we have edges everywhere and and you find yours brilliant message thank you um you've had over 50 guest appearances and counting on other podcasts i just wondered mm -hmm. how effective has this been for sort of creating awareness about your projects and what you do and sharing your message in general because i mean i've appeared on a, a few shows now maybe five to ten over the course of the last it's about a year and a half of doing this show and yeah i think the biggest thing i've i've gained from it is just making connections and you know reaching new people but um i wondered how effective it's been for you and um and if you'd recommend it as well fascinating question uh and and my 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 short answer is I'm not doing it for short-term returns. Right. I mean, I'm I'm doing it for, yeah, making the connections and and uh, it's 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 planting seeds. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, are people starting to uh, connect with me and and do that? Yeah, they are. And and the cool thing about these appearances, you know, and and now it's. You know, it's it's podcast, TV, radio, and and you know I'm I'm getting, and I'm and I'm starting to get uh, inquiries from people with larger and larger markets. Yeah. You know? So so that's part of it as well, but but fundamentally it's about I get to have really cool conversations with with somebody else, and you're going to ask me different questions and see different things out of it than I do and that anybody else I've talked to has. And, and I can truly say I've done, I've done actually almost a hundred of these in the, in the past few months. And, you know, there's a bunch of them that aren't out yet. And, yeah. and, and, you know, what I found one is really encouraging because uh, people have said, yeah, we'd love to have you on your, our show. And, and, you know, this is really interesting and they find it valuable and I'm, humbled because i have spent my entire life studying people trying to make something useful out of it and i will i will digress with a really quick story so when you know i said earlier that i was really fortunate to have a very senior scholar and be his last doctoral student and uh, bruce was you know he was in his 70s when, when I defended, and he was born 28. He was actually a third generation PhD, and he was born in 28. And, wow. and 
and and you know he got his doctorate in the 50s and and so he was really eminent and and we were really close and when he passed away a few years ago his kids asked me to deliver one of his eulogies at his at his service and i was really honored for that but i i will never forget when when you earn a phd the graduation ceremony is called a hooding and you know that that Higher education is a, one of these last bastions of, of, of a delightfully medieval sensibility. And we have, the more education you get, the more decorative your robes get. And, and the hood is that decorative sash that goes around you with your doctoral robes. So you go up on stage and your advisor, who has shepherded you through years of mentorship, is the one who puts the sash over you and hoods you. So Bruce was a bear of a man. He was a giant man and I'm average size. And, and so he, you know, put his, his, uh, you know, put the sash around me and he took me in this bear hug and he leaned into me and, and he said, and you know, out there, my parents are out there and my wife is out there and she's very, very pregnant with our, our son at the time. And he leans into me and he whispers now go do something meaningful with this privilege you've earned wow and for me i have had the privilege to spend my life studying humanity and and i love that and and i understand that what an amazing thing that we live in a society where somebody can actually devote their life to doing something like that and not you know something so practical like like defending us from bears right and 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 it's my responsibility because i've been able to do that to bring something back for other people and for me your life lived well is that thing because a lot of people have devoted themselves to the question how do you build a good life it goes mm -hmm. all the way back to the ancient Greeks and, and the study of eudaimonia, which eu, you know, demonia, eudaimonia, good life, like good stress, right? Same Greek root. And for me, I had a little bit different question that I have been fascinated with for years. And that is, how can you build a good life when you are stuck with something bad that you can't get away from? And if I can shed light on that question for other people and contribute to that conversation, then I consider that something meaningful that I can share. I think this point you make about contributing to life is a really fascinating concept because I remember when I was growing up, I was a very negative minded person. I wasn't in a great place and you know, throughout the course of my 20s, I've gotten to a positive place and it's always getting better. But I think the key thing I've learned, which I see patterns of everywhere I look, it's everywhere. In short, it's reverse psychology with everything. You know, the thing you want, you have to do the reverse of. So, you know, you want a wife, you want a woman, you need to not be desperate and play it cool. No matter what you're part is telling you right that's just a small example but with the bigger things that we're talking about like 
making something of your life. It sounds like such a big ask. And the reality is it doesn't have to be. I think a lot of the time when you dedicate your life and you work hard to creating something that can benefit other people in a big way, that's when you start getting what you want and becoming successful because it's no longer just about you. It's about this bigger thing that you're trying to achieve, you know? Yeah. And, and it's not, and it's no longer about other people's judgment. I mean, right. for me, it is fundamentally about me slogging through day after day, year after year, and, and trying to build the best thing that I can from all this research. Because I've literally, I've, I've, you know, I've, I've interviewed hundreds, I've surveyed thousands, I collected millions of data points, I did meta-analyses across thousands of studies, and, and have I made mistakes? Sure. Is somebody going to do something better? Sure. Do I, do I personally feel as if I have done the best thing that I can to add something of value to this human conversation that has been going on for thousands of years and will continue thousands of years after me? I hope so. Yeah, I mean, and, that's... That, and that's it. And then other people, some people like it and some people won't. And I don't care. <laughs> I, I, I really don't. It's like, yeah. pain. I don't care. I care that I've done the best that I could in this moment. And, and it's something that I want to share and that I hope somebody can get some value out of. And that people are telling me they are getting value out of. Yeah, that's the thing, because I mean, with, with your life, there's kind of like a transition, which is interesting. Because for me, it, it was the transition from being less selfish and being more selfless. And don't get me wrong, I still spend a lot of time working on myself. And I've, I still put myself forward in so much as the things I do. But the key in that, and that's the point I really want to hammer home, is that the things that you're doing do they benefit others in some shape or form? And sometimes you have to spend a lot of time working on yourself in order to do that. So a really good example of what I mean, because yeah. it sounds really cryptic and silly at this point, is to make others happy, you must first be happy yourself. And it sounds like such an obvious point, right? But it's so important. You know, yeah, I see time and time again, I see like in relationships, people are just miserable and I always say the same thing to them, which is you, you need to be happy yourself first and foremost, you know, because how can you expect to make that other person happy? So it all well, starts if you don't with, have the, yeah, if you don't have the energy and resources to give to others, well, you, you've got to keep going yourself to begin with. And you've got to do the things in you that build those resources so that you can then be giving yeah exactly yeah yeah that's my point exactly like this this idea of self-care and self-development and being the best version of yourself will benefit others because throughout the course of doing that you will help others you will and you'll be able to do that more and more as you keep growing because in the same way like a flower when it when it roots up and it becomes you know the best version of itself others benefit from that but only once it's gotten to that point. I just, I yeah. just find that really interesting how, how that works. This, 
you know, because you can get accused of being being selfish and only focusing on yourself. And sometimes that might be true if, you know, you're reaping the rewards of, of what you do, but then you're not sharing that with anyone else in any way. But I think a lot of the time, the lesson that has to be learned there is is this idea of, you know, sharing is the key to, to, to being happy in life. You want to share happiness and success with others. And to get to the bigger point that I wanted to make with this, it's like, you worked so hard on yourself for such a long time and it was this personal battle and you overcame so many obstacles and you got to this point where you overcame it but then it was like well, what do i do now and it's like well you share that story because that's an inspiring story that's a story that people need to hear that metaphor that you're making with skydiving and, and multiple sclerosis and everything you had to go through that's a message that people can relate to and understand it's a powerful message. You know, I think about like the reason I do this show. When I first started, I, the reason I did it was just purely selfish. I wanted to do it because I liked it and because, oh, maybe one day I'll become successful and famous and blah, 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 blah. I don't do it for that reason anymore. I do it because I love having good conversations with people and sharing their stories and learning from them and sharing them with people around the world that will be listening to this or watching this and that to me is an inspiring thing because i think about this concept that you don't know who's listening and watching it and you don't know how that might then inspire them to have the confidence within themselves to do great things themselves and that kind of goes back you know, here, to, to what your professor said yeah, to you in yeah. your ears the same exact thing it, it is and here's the most difficult thing for me about all of this and that was, I had, I, you know, I wrote this book twice. I, I, I have gone through a rebranding. I did a lot of stuff. And that is because, for me, the most important thing is the science. Okay. Because the science is, and the science is not about having one way to solve yourself. Because short answer here is, there are 150 different ways to change your behavior. And ultimately, if you are not happy with your life, if you have something bad that you have to face in your life, fundamentally, that devolves to behavior and mindset change. You're going to have to do something different to get a different result. And you're going to have to change the way you see the world, change the, what you're doing in the world, change your relationships, change your environment, something. Well, there are 150 different ways to do that. And if you look at the research, and, and I have. And... All of those will work for someone, but only some of them will work for you. And the ones that work for you right now will not work for you in six months or six years because you will change and the problems will change and so forth. So I'm not interested in pushing a method. I'm interested in giving people the tools so that they can continually make better choices for themselves and again, to go back to what we were talking about, choose life in this moment with the tools that work for you right now. So the science is the important thing to me. But, and here's the big but, for a long, long time, for two reasons, I was unwilling to share my own story. One, because it's not about me. It's about the science. And I, and I truly fundamentally believe that. However, 
if people don't know me, then, and they just get the science, then what it sounds like is Dr. Payne, science guy, talking down to everybody else. Yeah. And, and what I have to have people understand is that, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm Dr. Payne, science guy, but I have lived through all of this and my life has been ripped up completely because of all this. And I have all of the compassion in the world for, for everyone who is going through this. Mm. And so I had to be willing to, to put my story out there so that, yeah, maybe it's inspiring. If people find that inspiring, cool. I, you know, again, that's, that's I, I just want people to take the science and use the science and understand the science and put that because, because inspiration lasts for about this long. You can listen to this podcast and think, wow, that's a really inspiring story. And then, you know, it's like a bath. You've got to do it every day or you're going to stink. And if you're not continually inspired, you're going to be depressed about the whole thing. So it lasts about this long. What lasts after that? I'm concerned with what we do after the inspiration fades. That's because I want yeah, I want point. people to be yeah, I want people sure, be inspired, cool. But inspiration affects our primal brain. And and it's only about this long. So now use that little bit of inspiration, that little bit of motivation to take the first step in humbly, carefully, consistently even with all the failures, start built, interrogating your edges and building your new habits because those will last you forever. What's the best advice you've ever received? That I've ever received? No means next. <laughs> I like that. That's good. When uh. life tells you no, it's not an end next next sometimes short but sweet really is the best thing isn't it yeah what's, i like that one <laughs> what's the biggest life lesson you've learned so far it all starts with kindness hmm. no joke it all starts with kindness and that begins with you being kinder to yourself and what I mean by that is all of us treat ourselves like crap. All of us treat ourselves in ways that we would not tolerate from anybody else. If somebody else treated you that way, you would not be in a relationship with them. Mm -hmm. And yet... You are stuffed in that carcass with yourself and you can't get away. So you have a choice. And, and that choice is, do you continue this dysfunctional, codependent, abusive relationship that you have with yourself? And, and those voices that are speaking in that way, this is chapter two of the book.
Um, they, they, those are primal voices and they're really loud and they're really black and white and they're not nuanced and they only see a short time frame. And really honest to goodness, that critical voice in your head is trying to help you in the only limited dysfunctional way that it knows how, okay? Because each one of those characters in your head can only see a limited sense. Because your identity is the story you tell yourself about yourself. And, and you, our identity arises as you are trying to impose sense on this society of mind that's going on in your head. And a lot of those voices are really primal. And, and what that means is they're really old, they're really concrete, they have a short time span, and they only see the world in one particular way. And so that's the only contribution they have to make to you. And they wanna make sure they make that. So now, once you understand that all of your really awful negative voices are, are just doing a really bad job of trying to help you in the ways that it understands to do it, now you can give yourself a little grace and you can be a little kinder to yourself and you can teach those voices in your head carefully, practically, you know, time after time, you're gonna fail and say, look, I understand that you are really dogging on me about this particular thing. I hear you, I understand you, I'm not clamping you down because that works just as well like with little kids and dogs, right? You can't do it that way. You can't force it. You have to acknowledge it. And then you have to say, now, I'm gonna go ahead and do this thing that you are fearful or angry or frustrated or whatever it is about. And just please hang on with me and we'll get through to the other side and you'll find that we can succeed. So that next time when we're faced with that, that circumstance, you're going to be less negative. Be yeah. kinder to yourself. Yeah, I just want to reiterate this point as well, because this is a recent lesson that I've learned in the last couple of years too. I remember I learned this lesson from my ex-girlfriend, actually. She had this remarkable sort of positive... No means next comes from my ex-wife, by the way. Yeah, it's amazing how exes can teach us these things, isn't it? Um, yeah. my ex was really positive when it came to this concept of being in like a, a difficult situation where you feel like, Oh, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? And you, you hit that kind of fight or flight thing. And you're like, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? And she was like, and this was based on experience, but she would always say something will come along. Something will happen. These are my experiences that I had. And this is what happened. And I trust in the process. She wasn't saying that she didn't get scared still and worried, but she reconciled that it would be okay. And I, it took me a few years um, to really learn that lesson properly. And that was down to emotional maturity and stuff like that. But once I got to that point, I rely on that now. Every time something bad happens, I'm like, it's going to be fine. We've been here many times. I'm sure we'll be here many times again in the future. Calm down take it easy cool head prevails let's go 
but you have to, as you say, reconcile with that voice. It's oh, number one priority. It's, it's about disengaging those primal voices from control. Yes. You're not, you're not ignoring them, but you're saying we have a more expansive world. We have a longer timeline than you can sense. Because those voices were developed long before we had developed the capacities to see a bigger picture. So they fundamentally can't see beyond that. Mm -hmm. And if they are engaging, what happens is your primal brain is then making the decisions and they are engaging our frontal brains as rationalizers. So we're not making rational decisions. We've already made a pre-rational decision and we've engaged our frontal brains to pretty it up and make it seem palatable. So you've got to disengage them from control so that you can say, okay, I acknowledge your concerns. I, I, I can see where there's some validity in it, but now my central executive is going to be making that decision and not my basal brain. Great way to put it. Do you have any upcoming projects or some final thoughts that you'd like to share with our listeners? Um, gosh, I, I, I think I've probably shared more stuff than anybody <laughs> cares about, but, but I will say not if, true. If somebody is, if, if somebody is interested, we, we have just launched, we've got a regular series of, 16 different webinars uh, that uh, people can, uh, that, are, that are all about the managing the non-medical circumstances that follow from living with a condition that's never going to uh, get better. So behavioral change, pain management, uh, you know, medical adherence, a lot of those other relationships, you know, those kinds of things. So there's 16 of them. We do three of them each week and we rotate through them. Uh, that schedule has been announced and, and there's a massive discount for those things right now. We've also just launched the third season of the Your Life Live Well podcast. And the first episode that came out was about MS because it came out in March, which is MS Awareness Month. The next episode that's coming out, uh, it, it'll already be out by the time this airs, but that, that will be coming out the next, next week from relative to when we're recording this is on masculinity and chronic illness. And, and how do you live being a quote unquote sick man? So lots of stuff going on. Uh, you know, go to yourlifelivedwell.co and check it all out. It's been an absolute pleasure chatting with you and learning about your story and and just yeah, i found it inspiring i know my listeners will find it inspiring but i just want to say a massive half heart thank you for uh for appearing on the show and, and sharing it with us well thank you so much christian i have had a wonderful conversation and uh you you're just you do a great job with the interviews and i i i you're doing well thank you sir i really appreciate that it's, i honestly i i love doing this i really do and it shows it, it, it never stops being a joy for me i think because when, when you want to just sit and listen to people's stories and, and engage and listen you get so much you really do and for all those of you listening like 
try try to listen more and i know how that sounds i don't want it to sound like condescending but what i really mean is to really listen next time you have a conversation with parents family friends whoever it is just sit and listen to their stories and ask them about the things they're passionate about or they believe in and, and just sit and listen and you'll be amazed how much you can really gain from that and you know that's why i continue to do this show but yeah thank you very much sir and to all the listeners of the Christian Reef podcast, as always, be safe, be well, and I'll see you in the next one.